as we uh, as we start today's class, uh, I was kind of thinking this would be the last of the sheep. Uh, it's not. <laughs> uh, unless we really go fast, we're going to be doing John 10 uh, and the Good Shepherd next week. But yeah. So I'm going to tell you something about sheep. I was watching a podcast yesterday. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was on it was on the. Temple over in Italy that just opened up, mm -hmm. and and it was a art, the artist that did that fifty foot painting. It was fascinating. He explained every single thing and what the meanings were in that painting. And he brought up someone asking, "Why are there forty sheep?" And so he explained, well, "Christ was." 40 days fast. Mm. Moses was 40 days on the mountain. It takes a baby 40 days to and he went and said all these things about 40 days and I just thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah, well, and, and it's actually, I actually looked, I was looking back at last conference, we had two talks on sheep. Um, and so we are sheep filled. Uh, and, and, and we were just talking earlier about the fact, do we have as many modern archetypes and symbolisms uh, from our modern experience as we do with, uh, with sheep and folds and shepherds and staves and, and all those kinds of things and I could we couldn't think of any that were as as ubiquitous just all just runs through everything the same way that we have with sheep okay I mean even with the stuff with like internet and uploading and computers and stuff like that we just don't have the universal symbols that we do with sheep and shepherds it just is it resonates with us and what's fascinating too start looking for it in the Book of Mormon uh, we're gonna when we talk next week about uh, the the lost sheep and other sheep I have, and we go to the Book of Mormon is there as well, and they didn't have sheep. <laughs> That's the fascinating part about that that we know of. There's no record of sheep in the Book of Mormon other than what they're drawing from scriptural references from Isaiah and and all those kind of things, and so it is actually coming from the brass plates. Okay, so. All right. Well, that said, let's uh, just as a. Uh, oh, I thought this was nice. It's <laughs> a man I think in Ireland that likes to mess with people, and so he uses like a a non-toxic dye on his sheep, and then turns them loose, and so he he turns a lot of heads with that. I think it's kind of cool. Uh, but it did remind me, I've mentioned before, that uh, as our church is letting out in our, in our ward here, uh, I, can walk out this, I can walk out these doors here, we meet here, I can walk out of here, I can go down that direction just as the, uh, our Spanish branch is letting out, and so I'll go from uh, English here uh, to our wonderful Spanish branch in that corner and then within a few steps I'll walk over here to where our wonderful Chinese branch is just letting out and I, I just like I, I'm watching the diversity of the different um, sheep within the same fold so it's a very kind of cool experience that, uh, w that we get to have around here so yeah, and then there's the and then the Mandarin, and the Cantonese. I mean, we got the, yeah, I know, but for that, so uh, anyway, so so there we are. Um, now a reminder then about there it is. Whoops. 
Reminder of what we were talking about last time. We talked about the fact that uh, we said uh, in Luke 15 we get this thing where all tax collectors and sinners draw near to him to listen and the scribes and Pharisees complain saying this we talked about the fact that this in the earliest Greek uh, manuscripts is left blank. The later manuscripts fill it in this man, you know, but, but the original said this and then they just left it blank, this blankety blank this dismissively okay um, this accepts sinners and eats with them and so when we get the idea too that um, he returned to Capernaum after some days it was reported he was where at home so when we talk about he receives sinners what, what are we actually saying he was hosting sinners meaning he was feeding them, inviting them over to dinner. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? That, it? that it should give us a sense that says, while he was home, he was inviting sinners into his home, sinners and publicans, to eat with them. Now, by the way, I've kind of believed... Um, does that thing just keep on going here? Drive you nuts, won't it? <laughs> Uh, I, I, I've been playing with my animations a little bit. So you should stay put. Thank you. Okay. So you get a sense that not just, not just is he eating with sinners, he's inviting them to his home to eat. Uh, and, and I have just my own little speculation in my own head. Who do you think is preparing the meal? His wife. Could be wife or could be who? His mother. I suspect when Nazareth becomes to take off again. <laughs> <That'll do. laughs> it's not moving. Only the spiritual can see the. Okay. Um, so we're gonna. It's gonna say. I didn't know it was an endless loop. That's interesting. Okay. He spoke to them this parable. So what comes in Luke 15 is, is th we have seen them as three separate parables. They are one parable emphasizing the same points. Because this parable is going to be about lost sheep, lost coins, and lost boys. And it's going to be taken care of by a good shepherd, a good woman, and a good father. Okay? So let's... let's uh, Let's look for a second at the parable of the lost sheep, which is the first one in Luke 15. Now, imagine that his guests have come to eat, and he's feeding them, and the Pharisees are standing close by. Uh, they're just kind of standing watching this whole thing. And, the say, and they're going to ask him, what, this, this, you, you're feeding sinners and publicans. And he responds by saying, what man among you, meaning who? The Pharisees. What man of you, so suddenly he's going to draw them in. What man of you having a hundred sheep? Now, having means the, the the word the word really having really means to 
own the sheep. What, the, the, there's no servant involved here. What man of you who owns a hundred sheep? Now, this is kind of interesting. Last time we were talking about the fact that uh, the, in, this, in this area, the Havarim, the, the most strict, rigid Pharisees, were really active. And they, they're, we're the ones that study the law all the time. As, a, as opposed to the Aharam, which are the people of the land. And the people of the land would be like the shepherds. So even today, the most orthodox Jews don't work. They are constantly studying the scriptures. We are the knowledgeable ones, and the people of the land aren't as knowledgeable as we are. And he goes, ah, what among of you, Havarim, owning a hundred sheep? Oh, we're not sure we would. That would make us them. What among you owning a hundred sheep and loses one? How do you lose a sheep? One possibility is they wander off on their own volition. Okay? How else might you lose a sheep? You might just leave one behind. How, why would you, how would you leave them behind? Neglect. Do, do neglect. Yeah. I wasn't paying close enough attention. So I have lost one. And there is a, I was reading, there's a Middle Eastern idiom where they tend to remove the responsibility from themselves. The spoon got lost. <laughs> I didn't do it. The spoon just got lost. <laughs> my, my, my shoes have become lost. Sound like five-year-olds. Well, it is. It's, it's a little bit like I didn't do it, and and that, that that's very cultural uh, within there to say I didn't do it. So in losing the sheep, there's a tendency to say the sheep got lost, as opposed to taking responsibility that I did not keep close enough attention, and the sheep was lost through my neglect. It was my fault. What man of you, having a hundred sheep and lost one through your neglect, is kind of what he's saying. You neglect, you weren't staying on top of this enough. It's your fault. And by the way, these are Pharisees, so their responsibility is to be what? To be the shepherds. This is your flock we're talking about, guys. I mean, I, you know, I've come to Capernaum. You're the head of the... the um, the synagogue here, you're losing sheep through your neglect because you're not taking care of them. Okay? It's a lot, a lot contained in this in a very short space. Okay? What man of you, having 100 sheep, loses one and then. What he's saying to them is, when a shepherd loses his sheep, he naturally goes after it until he finds it. Then he carries it home and has a party. It's as simple as that. The lost I am bringing home are sheep you yourself lost, Pharisees. You're complaining that I'm bringing them in. You're the one that lost them. 
I know you don't like that them and that you despise me for going after them but when they are lost you lose because they were part of your flock you have less in your flock when they are found it's your gain can't you see it That's what uh, uh, Brother Ken Bailey is, is describing here. Where he goes, they're not necessarily seeing that the, the loss of the sheep is their loss. When we lose somebody in our ward, we are poorer for it, is, is what we're saying. And we had a responsibility to do our part. It might be that they've wandered, but it might be our own neglect. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And so that, that's why um, our, we had a conversation yesterday with our, uh, with our state president, President Beach, who had come for our ward conference, and we were sitting in here as brethren having a question and answer, and he wanted to know what the concerns were. And finally, at the end, I said, I've got a concern. The latest, um, well, uh, th th there's new research out on millennials in the church. And, and that statistic says we're losing somewhere between 40 to 50 percent of our millennials for a variety of reasons, but we're losing them. They're wandering off. Sometimes they're offended, but sometimes it's just, it just not relevant. And we're having, now, we're doing a much better job at most churches at keeping our millennials. But millennials in general are walking away from the church, churches. That's my concern. How, how do we how do we make it more relevant to them? So, all right. So, what man among you, having a hundred sheep and loses one, does not leave behind the ninety nine in the desert? You think, well, that's kind of weird. Why would he leave the 90 and 9? We're, there's a couple of interpretations on that. But I want you just, for the moment, let's just say, he's saying, you leave, you immediately leave the 90 and 9 in the desert. Um, that's really kind of, that is, that's fascinating. Um, and, and it'll be more fascinating next week when we talk about uh, the flock that's in the village versus the flock that's out on the pastures. And the difference between that. But, but what he's saying is you're immediately going to leave the 90 and 9 and go find uh, the, the one. Whether somebody else is watching the rest of them or not. What? Well, that's just always perplexed me. Why would you just leave them in the desert? See ya. Yeah. I'm like, you need to leave them in the sheepfold with somebody watching them. Then go get. Okay. Hold on to that idea. Okay. Joseph Smith will clarify. Okay. Um... And he's going to, and, and it, the scriptures will kind of clarify, but a lot of times it's missing. But that seems almost irresponsible. Mm -hmm. I got 99 and I'm going to forget the 90 and 9 and just go after this one. Great, I find the one and lose the other 99. Mm -hmm. You go, well, well that's weird. Translation. Yeah, hold on to that. Oh, man. They're stronger than the other one. They might be stronger. Yeah. 
Hold on to where they are. You guys are, I love the way you're thinking. Okay? And then go after the lost one until he finds it. Now, just a reminder, when is he most likely to find out he lost the sheep? You remember? When he gets back to the fold. So that's going to be at night. Remember, he's got the rod. And he's going to hold the rod over the entrance into the sheepfold. You know, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. We're missing one. So now what has he got to do? He's got to go find it. When? At night, in the dark. And he, may, and he may get another friend or somebody. He might have somebody watching the flock at the sheepfold. Uh, but now, he, now with the sun going down, now he's got to go into the dark, higher up in the mountain, up near the pastures, over the rocks and the bushes and stuff like that, and scurry and struggle and to try and find underneath caves and stuff like that. I've got to try and find this. I've got to find the lost sheep. But it's going to be at great personal cost. It isn't like it's it's easily done. Unless, you know, unless you're in New Zealand and you've got a drone. That's just going to float above there and get a chance to see it. Okay? Uh, but, but you get a sense that says, this is going to cost. Oh my gosh, I now know what's going to happen tonight. I've got to spend the rest of the night looking for the lost sheep. And it's not going to be easy. I, I can't just text them. <laughs> Sorry you weren't here. LOL. Miss you. Okay. Now. When he finds it, he places it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now, picture that. I want you to kind of picture that for a sec. With the sheep is up on his shoulders. And we get this imagery when we start talking about the Savior. And he's saying, take my yoke upon me. And that yoke is actually people. It's, it's on our shoulders. I'm carrying the sheep that was lost. I'm carrying it home. He places it on his shoulders rejoicing even though it's cost him all night. It isn't like he's going, I've been all over this place all night long on the mountains looking for you and I can't believe it's cost me all night. And I skipped out on dinner. I had a really good dinner plan and you were... <laughs> Places it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes to the house, and listen closely, he calls his friends. This is a, a direct shot at who? <laughs> which, which Pharisees? The Havarim. The, the guild of friends. Uh, we are the friends. We are the fellowship. We study our scriptures. He brings it home and calls to his friends, you guys, exactly. Oh, and neighbors. <laughs> friends and neighbors. Saying to them, mm -hmm. Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. By the way, where are the lost sheep at that moment? At, well, where Jesus is speaking. They're, they're with him where? 
At his home. At his table. <laughs> you, you just have to love the immediacy of this thing. He's, he's doing this thing and he's saying, I'm inviting the friends and neighbors to rejoice with me because we found the lost sheep. Very subtly, what is it that he's doing here? He, he found the lost sheep, but in, in telling this story, rejoice with me that I have found this lost sheep. He's teaching them ministry. He is teaching them how to minister. But in a much more immediate sense, what he's doing is, come sit down and eat with us. Join us and rejoice that the lost are found. There is room at the table for you. By the way, you are also my lost sheep. And we are going to talk about that in just a second. But you are also lost. Come join the table of the lost. Come eat with us. He's also saying to them, you're not supposed to be judging them all the time. You're supposed to be trying to help them. Yeah. You're supposed to be happy. That's right. They're from your synagogue. <laughs> these are your these are your peeps. Here they are. What are you doing? Join us at the table and eat with them. Now, if you're the Habarim, you're going to go like, "Well, we don't do that." No, that would make us unpure. Not necessarily according to the law of Moses, but the way that we interpret the law of Moses, that would make us unclean. So we're not going to come sit down and eat with you. The Savior's saying, "Come rejoice with us." We found them at great personal cost. Here they are. Now, if you're following along in the scriptures, what is not present in the story? What has been left out here? Anybody know? There's no answer. They, there is no response in the story he says rejoice with me I found my lost sheep but he then that's when the story stops and it leaves you to do to guess what did they do it or not yeah did, come rejoice with me well, and did they or not and in a sense, even with the Pharisees, you can come eat with us if you want. I found your lost sheep. Come eat with us. Crickets. <laughs> there's, no, there's no answer there. Okay? Masterfully taught. Masterfully done. Yeah? I have a kind of strange question. Yeah? I feel strange, but I, I, I want to ask. Yeah? So, um... You were saying, I, my question is why, why Jesus kind of put responsibility on those people who don't know how to recognize his sheep? And uh, did he put responsibility on them or, uh, mm. you know what I mean? I, I, I hear what you're saying. And if, if he didn't want to do that, then why he tried to teach them, these are your sheep? And then I come to show you these are my sheep and you're just custodian of my sheep. <laughs> but why Jesus knows those people are so snobbish? 
Yeah. Why they? Why he still want to spend the time to teach those people? Maybe it's helplessly to be redeemable. <laughs> <laughs> She says, why is he taking the time to try and teach these people who have been kind of snobbish? Yeah. And they, they've been, and, and isn't it interesting, when we were talking last week about uh, Ezekiel, and he's talking about, they've been bad shepherds. Sometimes they're bad shepherds, sometimes they're bad sheep. But in this case, this is like you guys have been bad shepherds. But I do think it's interesting. In the, what really struck me about this is that even at this point, he's inviting them to the table as well. You don't have to be bad sheep. You have been bad sheep, but you... Especially, wait till we talk next week in John 10 about the porter and the, the gatekeeper of the sheep and the Savior comes to replace the gatekeeper and comes in person to do it. So, no, I, I don't think that's a bad question at all. Yeah. There's been hundreds and thousands of years of tradition built upon tradition that these people have been swamped in. Yeah. So he knows that they've been taught incorrectly. So of course he's going to get There's a possibility that some of them might catch on and say, yeah, I need to do that. But they're going to have to go way against tradition to do that. Okay. Now, the scripture actually ends with, rather than say they accepted the offer to come to the party. He's going to say, I say to you, Pharisees, Havarim, that there will be more joy in heaven over one repenting sinner than over the 99 who do not, and I added, do not think they need to repent. That's the Joseph Smith translation. That's the Joseph Smith take. Where he was saying in this case, what the Savior is saying, there are 99 who don't think they need, to, that they need repentance, that they're sinners, and they really are. So that's why I'm leaving them. I'm not going to teach. I'm not spending time with them. I'm going to spend my time with the one who who is willing to be rescued. Is basically what he's saying. That that's that's the gist of it. So it isn't like this is really a weird shepherd who just walks away from the 99 in the desert and goes to get the one and loses the other 99 because he just focused on this one he likes more than everybody else. What he's really saying is in this setting, and you're going to find it different in Matthew. We'll talk about that in a sec. Um, what he's saying is the other 99 don't think they need to be rescued. In fact, they're standing at my doorstep pointing at the one that I found because you guys think you're fine. So I'm not going to spend that much time trying to teach you. My words are going to go to the lost sheep who want to be found, who are willing to be, who are bleeding. They're calling out, I'm lost. Come find me and bring me home. Okay? That's, that's basically what he's saying. But he's still leaving out the other piece of the story, whether or not they came to dinner. <laughs> they were invited, but will they do it? Good question. Yeah. So I have a response to what she asked. Um, and that's the reason he taught them is because he loved them. And his mission was to the house of Israel. It was. But the Pharisees were also house of Israel. I know. That's that, yeah, he was going to teach them, but you know what? He wasn't going to spend a lot of time trying to teach them. He's going to bring them, but then he's going to invite them, and all he can do is invite. You can join us at the table. It's up to you. See what you do. Okay? But okay. That's the same thing that he did with the, uh, the rich young ruler. Who yeah, he invites. Absolutely. Well, now we're going to get a second story where we get the same, the same pattern is in place here. 
Okay? Remember, this is one parable. This is the first part, and he's going to draw on the 23rd Psalm to, to start this, this cascade of stories. But now here comes the second one, and you can't and you have to see them together in one package. Okay? So the next one is going to be the lost coin. Okay? We're going to be drawn in to the house now. In, uh, in, the, no in the northern end of the, the Sea of Galilee, uh, a lot of the blood, uh, especially if you can try and, try and uh, get down to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, there's a lot of black uh, basalt or basalt. And that's what the homes are built from. So you have all of these black, the black rock, like you see here, with little small windows. Now also on the inside, on the floor, are slabs of rock. And they're kind of pushed together. So it doesn't have to be a dirt floor, but it will certainly be a rock floor. So picture a dark interior of black rock and, and slabs of rock that make up your floor. Okay? What woman who has ten silver coins, he says, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Why is she having to light a lamp and sweep the floor? It's dark. And she's going to have to clean and go to every nook and cranny and, and in between these slabs. You just kind of get this intense effort coming from this woman to try and find her lost coin. It's like today. You, next thing you know, you're going through the trash and everything. Yeah. Where's my phone? Where's my phone? I don't know. I tear everything apart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. When she finds it, and so she sweeps and she cleans and she sweeps and she cleans, she goes crazy, she finally finds it, then what does she do? Yeah, she's going to rejoice with me. She, she says to her friends and neighbors, by the way, it is interesting in this case, the word friends here, rather than being kind of male, is now female. The, the Greek is actually saying, so there's a woman, and she's inviting her female friends in. She finds it and says to her friends and neighbors, Rejoice with me because I have found the coin that was lost. And then, thus I say that there shall be rejoicing before the angels in heaven when that sinner repents. What is missing from this story? Did the friends come? Yeah, he did it again. It's fascinating. Uh, there, there are three stories in here, and we're, we're not going to do the third story. I'm, I'm kind of holding that out. We're going to do a whole, whole uh, lesson on uh, the, the prodigals. But there are three stories here. The sheep, the coin, the boys. And what you're going to find here is that only in the last one does he invite the friends and they come. 
But I do want you to spot something else about this that I think is really kind of important. Um, in fact, I tell you what, I'm going to pop over here. And I'm trying to remember if I put it in here. So there's some lessons that come out of the, the lost coin thing. Uh, this actually is one of the Lucian couplets. Uh, Luke, uh, a lot of times when he's telling stories, he tends to put a story of a man and then a story of a woman. And he puts them together. They're called the Lucian couplets. And it, there's always a, there's a balance there. Think about when Jesus is brought to the temple right after his birth, and he's going to be blessed by uh, uh, Simeon and by Anna. Okay, there's a man and a woman, and Luke does that a number of times. He's always tending to show uh, a balance between this, and so we get a male shepherd. What man have you, shepherd, is going to lose the sheep, and then what woman have you lost the coin? Or the coin was lost. <laughs> okay? And he tends to do this. There's a balance in Luke, male to female. So that's one of, this is one of what they call the Lucian couplets. This is the only parable that we know of, unless there's one that we haven't found, where the Savior actually compares himself to a woman. The Savior is comparing himself to the shepherd, the woman, and the father in these three. And this, in one, in this one, he's, he's, he's uh, comparing himself to a woman. I think, it's kinda, I think it's cool, and it fits with the Lucian couplets. Well, is he comparing himself, or is he comparing his role as a Savior, which is not sexual specific? Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and, and I think it isn't necessarily sexual, but he's trying to say men and women, right. brothers and sisters together, this isn't a, in a male-dominated society, this is a little bit egalitarian. He's inviting everybody. I think it's kind of cool. This is the rebel part of him. We, uh, if, we get, if we get to it, we're going to have a lesson on Jesus the rebel. <laughs> the amount of times that he pushed back against the tradition and, and, and the things that he was doing there. But this is a, an example of that rebelness. Okay? A uh, little, little piece of the, that is important, I think, to scholars. The, the Greek word for the coin that she loses is a drachma. Uh, in the 50s, uh, when Nero comes to power, he, he changes out the Greek drachma for denarii. The fact that the word here is drachma is one of those things that says this was written very early on. Uh, and it's kind of an internal evidence of this is really accurate stuff. Because the, the money's right, is, is basically. So, anyway, I thought that was interesting. Now, the coin even while it's lost, does not lose value. How many times when our lost sheep are lost are they pretty sure that they, they're not as valuable as everybody else? The sheep, the, the sheep is still valuable when it's found. The coin hasn't lost its value. I think that's pretty awesome. Okay? Now, I'm trying to think if I'd put this, one more that I think is really kind of important here, and I can't remember if I put it here or not. Oh, there it is. Yeah, I did. I was smarter than I thought. <laughs> the sheep is lost in the wilderness. Where's the coin lost? In the house. In the house. 
Okay, hang with that for a second. I think it's the coolest part of the whole story. For the prodigals, the one is lost in the wilderness. The other one is lost where? In the house. In other words, what's the Savior telling us? Where can we be lost? Anywhere. And, and there are those that get lost from the church in the wilderness. They wander away. But what is he also saying? In the church. You can be lost in the church. You can be lost in the house. Sometimes we are here and we're still lost. And I think that's the story of the prodigal as well. There is the one brother that isn't rebelling and going off and taking, but he's still lost. He doesn't understand God's mercy. So how many times do we have people that are going to be, they're here, but they're still lost? We're assuming that we need to minister and go find the lost sheep. And he's saying, no, sweep the floor. Where? In the wilderness? In your own house. Sweep the floor in your own ward. Sweep the floor in your own families. Because you may find the lost in your midst. That's pretty powerful. And they are as lost as the one in the wilderness, even though they're still safely, it appears, in the house. One thing I noticed when you were just reading it is that she uses a light. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. What, what would you take from that? Well, I, there's, I mean, the light of Christ, the light of the gospel, you know, Holy Ghost are different things represent. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that she'd have a light in one hand and a, probably a broom in the other? So you're carrying that light while you're cleaning and looking for those inside the house. I, I just think that's, there's a whole, if you want a good Sunday, or a good uh, sacrament lesson, a talk, this would be four star. The lost, the lost in the house. Even the fact that she looks in every corner. Yeah. I mean, she's like searching for all Oh, ab- yeah. That'd be, am I lost? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to search all those corners of my life kind of thing. I just think the, the symbolism here is just rich and deep. And it's just a little short story. But it ties so closely to the sheep and to the 23rd Psalm that it is the, the way that the Savior has, has pulled this together I just think is so incredibly powerful. Yeah. I, I remember watching this talk several times years ago. It was by Aileen Sporsby uh, 2000. Uh-huh. Yeah. The Crisis of Unbelief. And he was talking about like young adults and, and youth you know, like and stuff. And he said you, maybe you don't notice it just happening but if it's in your own home yeah you notice it and 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 but it's a fabulous talk about about how to help the lost and we're going after there with a light and a broom <laughs> yeah. well and I remember this other talk about this mom years ago when my kids were young and, and it was about keeping a pot of soup home on whenever they come home and I remember thinking well, that's not happening to me, which I never dreamed that I would have. I mean, I didn't mean that ugly in any way, but I just remember having no idea that sometime in the future I would have some in my own family that... Yeah, that got lost. That got lost, but that are still fabulous people. Yes. 
Right. And we never give up holding the light up, and we never give up sweeping and cleaning and looking at the, the corners. I, I, I like that a lot. Okay, yeah? I'm just thinking, could there be something in the fact that the shepherd uses his voice and calls the sheep? Yeah. Oh, oh. Right, and there's no way that the coin can really kind of call out itself. Uh, so sometimes with the light, you got to go. I like that. Sometimes they're calling for us. Sometimes they're not. Great point. Yeah. I like thinking of the light as the love of Christ. We're using that light to help find what where we should go and illuminate in a dark place. Yeah. Yeah, that's why. See how rich it is. Isn't it, isn't it cool? Okay. All right. By the way, that is a drachma. In case you were wondering, that's Athena. Okay. Let's see. Now, just for just for fun. I wanted you to see something. We talk about the fact that uh, Scripture can be a little bit living. In fact, it can be used as nothing is really kind of carved in stone. And this is an example. And it's an example of one of two things. Because the, the lost sheep shows up in Matthew 18 as well. But it's different. And we don't know if... If Luke looked at Matthew's version of it and went, yeah, great story, it's in the wrong place, it should be in the house in Capernaum, or whether the Savior himself used it in two different places with two different applications. And, I, and at first I used to think, I think Luke just updated it. The more I've read this, the more I think the Savior used the same story of the, law of the 90 and 9 in two different places to emphasize two different things. Because the players change and the emphasis changes. So I thought I'd take just a second. Here's Matthew 18 and it, it's, it's in a fascinating place. Uh, so I think what I'm going to do uh, ooh, that's really big. Let's see. Hmm. Here we go. Finally. Okay, that's going to be a little hard to read. Okay. All right. Matthew 18. Uh, from the, the Wayman version here. 
at this time, the, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he calls a child and places them in their midst. And they say, If you do not change and become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so you picture that they're kind of arguing among themselves about how great they are and who's the best disciple and, and, and who's, got the, who's got the best calling and, you know, and the best family and that makes me the best. You know, and they're just arguing and they're doing all that stuff. Um, and he says, no, let me put a child in your midst. You've got to become like the child. Now, he called a child, put him in the midst. Whosoever become humble like this child, this person will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, and then he's going to go on, then he works off of that and he says, <coughs> Whoever puts a stumbling block in front of one of these little ones, now, the word for child is child. The word for little ones, the Greek word actually means little people. He's not talking about children at this point. He's now talking about the, 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 the more humble disciples that are following them. The, 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 the unnamed people. The, the crowd, the ward, the people. Anybody that puts a stumbling block in front of these sinners and publicans, those people that are following me, that don't seem to be really articulate, and they seem to be poor, they're not the Havarim, they are just people of the land, they're doing the best they can, and they are showing up for the Feast of the 5,000 and all that kind of stuff. They're here. If you put a stumbling block in front of these little ones who believe in me, it's better that a person has a millstone hung around his neck than he may be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's, that's a change. We would have thought that, that stumbling, that, that millstone thing was always about children. And, I, and it certainly works at that level. But the Savior is expanding that to say, no, this is all people. You put a stumbling block in front of my humble saints and you'll wish you had a millstone. Now, so, he's going to have that discussion. Then he's going to say uh, in, verse, in verse 10, Be watchful that you do not despise these little ones. Don't think you're better because you're one of my twelve. Don't think you're better than the people of your congregation or the people that you're teaching. Don't despise these little ones, I say unto you. They're angels in heaven are always looking upon the face of their Father in heaven. Then, it, then in, in this setting, talking about children and humble saints, then he says, what do you think? If a certain person has 90 sheep and one of them wanders off, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and search out the wandering sheep. If he's going to be in the mountains, he's going to have help. He's going to have people to keep an eye on those. He's going to, uh, he's going to leave the 99 in the mountains and search out the wandering sheep. And if that person finds it, truly I say to you, he will rejoice more than over the 99 that did not wander. Therefore, 
It is your, the will of your Father in heaven that not one of these little ones be lost. See the dramatic change? Where before there is the 99 in, in the Luke story, the 99 are who? The faith. Th th those that think they need no salvation, the Pharisees. And the one is the sinner. But in this story, who are the 90 and 9? The faithful. And he's going to go after and make sure that everyone is lost. Because they're all valuable. They're like the coin. Found. Everybody is found. Yeah, he does not, not want to lose the one. In other words, the ninety and nine are, don't think they need salvation. It's, it's, in fact, in this case, the little the ninety and nine are those that say, "Yes, we do. We're here. Don't despise us." Yeah. So when, you, when we just did the mountains there, my thought went to the temple. Yes. Whenever we talk about uh, the, these green pastures and, and we're going to go up to green pastures and we're going to go up to mountains, every time the temple symbolism is right behind it. That's what, they would, that's what they would understand. So you get a sense of those that are kind of here and faithful and one has wandered off away off the mountain or into un, unknown paths. Think about First uh, Nephi 8, they wander off, and you're going to go find them. You're going to go get them. Okay? So, I just think it's interesting that if the Savior wants to, he will sometimes take stories and he say, I'm going to change the meaning of the story to meet a different situation, and sometimes in the scriptures you will certainly get that. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah? I've always thought about those examples as far as missionary work, too. Um, and maybe he wasn't referring at all to missionary work, but besides what's going on in our own house, I've also, maybe it's because I've had friends join the church who have said, oh, I wish I hadn't made those mistakes, or I wish I hadn't lived that way. I wish I wish I, I had never been that person. And I said, what does the scriptures say about the rejoicing in heaven? To me, you have proved so much more in your life Right. Because I grew up in the church, these things weren't temptations to me. But you, you have overcome. I, I get choked up when I. But, but. I'm part of the past that I have. Right. I may overcome so much that to me, I kind of feel like I've skated by. It's yeah. Natural to me. But isn't it interesting? They have fought for it. And the rejoicing in heaven. Yes. And they're saying, I wish I hadn't had to walk that path. I wish I had been in your path all along. So I did lose something in those years that I wasn't, that I didn't have the truth. But, but we look at them and go, you bring a wealth of knowledge, of understanding. Uh, now, we, because we have tasted the bitter, now we know to cherish the sweet. Yeah, they've proven so much. Yeah. Yeah, it's really true. And that's why we rejoice when they show up. I, I think those sometimes that are lost and they think that they're, they're 
They're the coin that has somehow lost value. I don't think they understand sometimes an award when somebody has been lost and they come back. When we get excited when they show up and we want to give them a hug and embrace them and they're a little bit uncomfortable about that. I don't want to make a big splash. No, you are a big splash. You were lost, now you're found. Let's hold a party. <laughs> Let, let's, let's have an open house. They were, they've come back. And they're a little, they're a little self-conscious. I'm not sure I deserve that. So, no, I, I, I think that that's, that's beautifully put. Okay, all right. Let's. Um, all right. So, with that, with that as a backdrop, now I want to go to one more chapter here. We're still on, by the way, we're still on, on Psalm 23, right? <laughs> <laughs> and next week we will have one more Psalm 23, and then, I, and then we will have exhausted the sheep as far as we're going to take them. But, um, depending on how far I get past, I guess, this next stretch here. But this is still, this is still Psalm 23. This is, gives you an idea just how beautiful and powerful and deep and rich and a thousand years of storytelling from this are in the scriptures from Psalm 23. Okay. Now, I'm gonna, now let's pull one from Mark. We've got 30 minutes to do it in. I think I'm in, I think I can get it. Okay. I hope. Unless, Shelley, you start talking too much and then we're not able to get through. <laughs> Remember that Mark, the book of Mark was originally done as a play and it was done orally. Um, and we think that Mark, the stories that he's telling and he's drawing probably from some material when they're, when they're doing it orally, uh, but we think he's drawing from the, the tellings of Peter. Is, is kind of the tradition that goes with that. Mark is telling Peter's story in a sense. Now this is one of those moments where you see it and if you can picture it more like a movie you're gonna see the moment and this is a pretty dramatic moment it's also a very incredibly dangerous moment for the Jesus movement in at this moment okay so that's why you gotta kinda see it as a movie there's great drama here. So there's going to be two stories. Scene number one in Mark 6. He called twelve and he began to send them two by two and he gave them power over unclean spirits. He sent, he's taught the, the, the twelve and now he's sending them off on missions and they're out teaching and they're having success. And they went out and declared that all should repent and they cast out many demons and they anointed with oil many that were ill and they healed them. That anointing with oil is a, is a key word here. Mark's going to start sprinkling these in that tells you that, it, that it's tying back to something. This is, this is a reference, I believe, back to the 23rd Psalm. You anoint my head with oil. They are gathering in. The, the, they're bringing them back. You've, uh, you've uh, restored my soul. Anointed many that were ill and they healed them. Okay, so that's like, th think about like a Star Wars movie or something. You get this scene and then it goes black 
Now we're going to go to scene two, and you need to put both scenes up next to each other because they're happening simultaneously, but the one feeds into the other. So here's scene two. Meanwhile, King Herod, which by the way, he was not a king. When Herod Antipas is able to suck up to Mark Antony, or up to Octavius, the, his kingdom was broken up into several smaller areas. And one was uh, Herod Antipas has the lower area down around Judea, Jericho, and then his brother Philip gets the upper region up in the upper Galilee on the west, on the east side of, of the, the lake. The Decapolis, the ten cities of the Gentiles. That's Philip's territory. That's why we get, uh, and the Savior goes to Caesarea Philippi. It's the Caesarea named after Philip, as opposed to the Caesarea Maritima on the coast. But that's that's Philip's area up there, okay? Philip has a wife. Her name is Herodias. Isn't that great? King Herod heard this. Heard what? Heard from scene one. Herod is going to be hearing, because he'd heard Jesus' name had become known to him. Now, how is Herod going to find out what Jesus is teaching about? People are talking, and, and one or two possibilities exist. One, there are people that are reporting, that are kind of telling Herod what's going on. Two, is the possibility that he's spent sending spies into Jesus' camp. Either one is a possibility. In other words, there's information flowing from what Jesus and his disciples are doing on the ground and is getting back to Herod. And they're telling him what he's saying and doing. Now, that's kind of important. Isn't John the Baptist really? Actually, isn't John the Baptist? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, in fact, let's talk about John, shall we? Do we have to? <laughs> Do we have to? Some said to him, John the Baptist was raised from the dead. And now in the scene you go, what? Oops. You go, wait a minute. John the Baptist was raised from the dead. We didn't know that John was dead. But it turns out, John the Baptist is dead. Oh, well we should tell that story then, right? But in the way that Mark is telling it, it's kind of like a foreshadowing. You know, it, it, it would be like, by the way, after Julius Caesar died, and you go, oh, we, didn't tell the, we didn't know the story of Julius Caesar died. Oh, let me tell you that story. Well, we're interested. It's a great foreshadowing. That's why this is done as a play. John the Baptist was raised from the dead and because of his miracles are at work in him. Others coming to Herod said, I think he's Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the past prophets. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who is this Jesus? Well, wow. And it could be that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. You go, well, we've got to read the rest of the story to find out about John. Okay? 
Okay? Herod heard this and said, oh my gosh, it's John whom I beheaded has been raised. Well, you don't yet have the story of John being beheaded. So now you've got to get the story of John being beheaded before you're going to understand why, why this is kind of important. Okay? Alright. So, we have the story of John and Herod. John himself had sent men and had John arrested and bound in prison because of, there she is, Herodias, the wife of Philip, his brother, because Herod had married her. That's a little weird that you're going to marry your sister-in-law, but somehow he managed to woo her away from Philip, which I'm sure was not real happy news for Philip uh, up there, okay? So, he marries her, um, which is fine, but she has a problem uh, because John starts speaking up. It's not lawful to have your brother's wife. Whoa! And Herodias held a grudge against him, John, and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. She doesn't like this prophet running around the Jordan telling everybody about her business. Even though it's true. <laughs> okay? Because she wasn't able to because Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and a holy man, and he protected John. Okay? Get that part? Okay? When he heard John, he was confused, but he listened to him gladly. He liked what John had to say. He didn't like that part like you stole your wife thing, but he did, this part, uh, he was actually listening to that, and said, so he liked what John was saying. Okay? But the problem was that Herodias did not. Okay. Now, here's this, here's this moment then, this very dangerous moment in, in this thing, because we know then what happens, right? In that... Uh, we're going to get, uh, he's going to hold a party. Uh, huh, okay. Yeah, let's leave it here. Leave it here, okay. He's going to hold a party. And people are going to come, and it's going to be military leaders and prominent people and everybody, and they're going to have a dr kind of a drunken party. There is a feast going on of a king. It's birthday. And it's Herod's birthday. So we're going to have a party. We're having a great time. We're going to get really, really drunk. And Herodias sees her moment, sends in who, the, the daughter that Josephus uh, says is Salome. Oh, yes. Okay? She's going to dance. She can demand the head. And then in the middle of this, uh, then we get this, what, what was a kind of a celebratory, kind of a drunken party for his birthday, suddenly turns into kind of a banquet of death and a very shocking moment when John is beheaded and kind of shown off. Okay? Uh, now, that, as incredibly shocking as that is, it's a very dangerous moment in a young ministry. Because the disciples heard of John's death. They came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And 
The apostles gathered to Jesus and they told him everything they had done and taught. You need to put those two stories together to understand what's about to occur. Okay? Spies and people are telling Herod what's going on with Jesus, what he's saying. John is speaking out against Herod and he's being beheaded. And the disciples are burying the body and then where are they going? Straight to Jesus. About in grief, in loss, and shock. This, is sending, this would send shockwaves through the whole uh, community about saying John the Baptist, who had a ministry running down here, while Jesus is really more in the upper Galilee, John down here in Judea has now been beheaded. Herod knew about it, and he's now, he's now killed John. And now they're going back and saying, we just buried him. And isn't, it's no accident then that the apostles come to Jesus, they tell him everything they had done and taught, and he said to them, come to a secluded place with me and rest a little while. What is it that's happening? It's his cousin. He's mourning. It's his cousin. He's mourning. Well, not only mourning, in this, in this society, if you're, th th think, think that the closest in some cases you could get to kind of the Jewish mentality at this point is what happens if you're a, a mobster from Sicily and somebody's going to kill one of yours it's vengeance and retaliation yep okay it's vengeance and that would be expected vengeance when if somebody is going to in a drunken rage is going to kill one of yours then could you then should you then be fighting back that's the question. If you're Herod, that's a real possibility. Will these people rise up against me? They don't like me anyway. I'm one of the Herodians. I've just married my, my brother's wife. I'm not popular. I'm the one that's levying the taxes. It's always an... And I have these zealots out here that are fomenting hate down here anyway. It'll take them 30 years to finally get the rebellion they want. But at this moment, this is a scary moment, and Herod is really scared. And what is the Savior doing? Get him out of there. Let's call in the missionaries. The, it's like when we take the missionaries out of countries where suddenly things are falling apart. He's calling in the twelve. Guys, come on in. Let's talk about it. This is kind of dangerous out here. And word of everything we're doing is getting back to Herod. It's a very dicey moment. And they departed in a boat to a deserted place by themselves. But many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and arrived there before them. So you have the, all these disciples. It's a scary time for them too. What's he going to do? And in that mix would be those like, we're grieving. Uh, it's like when Joseph Smith was killed in Nauvoo and then we just need to get together and grieve together. There are also those on the other side that says, he was our prophet and it was Herod that did it. Let's get him. <laughs> so there, I mean, you get this whole mix of voices about how do we respond to John's death? This is so. It, so they're meeting together, and so suddenly, Je Jesus saying, "I just want to take the twelve and let's like pull them in and just kind of let things cool down a little bit. Talk about what comes next." Yeah, we're just going to go to ground. <laughs> we're going dark. 
But everybody's going, no, we don't want to go dark. We want to, some want to be, greet, want to be comforted. Others want to go get him. It's the, 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 uh, the neighborhood is in an uproar over the death of John, is what you'd be finding here. Now, love Mark. Here comes a little foreshadowing. He's already told us they were anointing with oil. Then he says, As Jesus disembarked, he saw a great crowd, and he was moved with compassion for them, because they were what? As sheep without a shepherd. Mark wants you to see, he's tying this into the shepherd traditions about what's about to happen is part of the shepherd tradition. They are sheep, and I don't want you to miss this, he says. They are sheep without a shepherd. That should go, ding, oh, okay. This is one of those moments. And he began to teach them many things. Now, there is in Psalms an interesting little uh, piece that I found, and it says in Psalm 78, they tested God, speaking about the ancient Israelites, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Bread or meat? Can he do it in the wilderness? Can God do that? Then that gives us Mark 6. And let's see if I can pull up Mark 6. Come on, you're supposed to. All right, so here's Mark 6. And we're going to get, okay, um, so the apostles gathered to Jesus, they told him everything that had done and taught, he said, come to a secluded place, rest, they're coming and going, they departed in a boat, uh, people see it, they recognize him, they came on foot, uh, they, they disembark. Uh, and then it says he saw a great crowd. He was moved with compassion because they were a sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Then it's late. And they say it's a deserted place. Send them away. And he says, no. Uh, give them something to eat. And they say to him, should we go or buy 200 silver coins or denarii it's actually when it's written down it actually has become denarii which is another don't get caught up in that but it's it's part of the proof of the validity of this thing uh, worth of bread so we may give them something to eat how much bread do you have he says and they go well we only have five loaves and two fishes and he commanded them to sit in groups where grass. on the grass. what grass green, green grass you see it? 
Mark is throwing these little pieces. They are as sheep without a shepherd. He's moved with compassion. They come out there and he's going to feed them where? In green pastures. This isn't an accident. This is a very deliberate literary part to say this is part of that 23rd Psalm tradition, what is about to happen. So make sure you, that's why we see it in this light and we tell the story in this frame. Okay? They're going to sit down on green grass. They sat down in group. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. They sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. Then he's going to take the two loaves and fishes, the bread and meat, and he's going to prepare a meal for them. Where? Where do you prepare a meal? According to the 23rd Psalm. In the midst of your enemies. The enemies in this case might quite literally be Herod's spies. Who are watching what's about to happen. You prepare a meal for me in the presence of mine enemies. Now, he blessed it and broke it and he, and he gave it to the disciples. They might set it before the people. They divide it and they were all filled. Okay, you prepare a meal for me in the presence of mine enemy and... You anoint my head with oil and my cup runneth o'er. There is so much on the table that there's stuff left over. <coughs> they gathered up twelve baskets full of broken fish and they that ate were five thousand men. Meaning what? How many people are really at the feeding of the five thousand? And there are also women and children. This is an army of people. If at this moment Jesus wanted to say, let's go get Herod. I have 5,000 men. He's got a garrison probably of 100 legionnaires. He could have easily... And now, now think how Herod is thinking about this. His spies are saying, he's out there with 5,000 5, people. Man. In Herod's mind, in the eyes of the enemy, that, this, was a, this was a formidable group out there. And, and they know that they're reporting back to him. You prepared this meal in the presence of mine enemy. But in this case, instead of a banquet of death, what are we getting? A feast of life. There, this is a tale of two banquets. This is a tale of two feasts. Uh, one case, under a supposed king, we're getting a um, death and horror. And on the other side, here is the real king, the shepherd, who will feed his people, and he maketh them to lie down in green pastures. Really kind of cool, yeah. Is it at all symbolic of um, the sacrament? Because he hands it to his apostles, and then they distribute it out to the 
different groups. It is also of uh, yeah. This is also a foreshadowing of the sacrament, because as is was the manna and stuff like that. I'm going to provide the bread of life, because right. not long after this is going to come the bread of life sermon. Sure. I can give bread. I can do it in the wilderness because God does that. Psalm 78 says that God will prepare a, a feast in the wilderness for His people. I mean, this is a pretty loud saying, right? Are they getting it? Well, Mark isn't real sure. Okay. Now, there is one more piece, though, that we got to account for from the Psalm 23. My cup runneth over because you're gonna. I'm gonna have to lie down beside green pastures and what? Oh, we're missing an element from the story. Should we add that element to the story? Why not? Let's do that. <coughs> he dismisses the crowd. That's, his, that's Jesus' way of saying, this won't be an army, go home. We're not going to march on Herod. It's his way of saying, Herod, you're safe. Don't worry about it. This is not, there won't be an uprising for another 30 years. But not now. Sends him home. He's going to go on the mountain to pray. You know the rest of the story, right? Uh, he saw them straining at the oars. Three in the morning. He's going to come walking on the sea. They're going to see him walking on the sea. They think it's a ghost. Cheer up. Do not be afraid. He enters the boat and... The wind ceases. He's going to lead him where? Beside still waters. So the still water piece is going to come in here as well. Now, this is really important because Mark is going to say they, the disciples, were completely astounded because they did not comprehend the miracle of the loaves. You would think that would say they were astounded because they couldn't comprehend the miracle of walking on the water. That's amazing. Peter was walking on the water. Jesus was walking on They couldn't comprehend the miracle of walking on the water. And Mark is saying, uh-uh, no, 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 no. They couldn't comprehend the miracle of the, of the what? Loaves. The loaves. What did the loaves have to do with it? He is the bread of life. He is the shepherd. They weren't, according to Mark, and that would, might have roots back to Peter, they still weren't quite completely getting the picture that says, I am the shepherd from the psalm. I am. I am the God that gave the, your, your father's manna. And, it, and he, Mark's going to say, I, I need you to see what this is. This is The miracle was the loaves. It wasn't the walking on the water. The part of walking on the water was part of the miracle of the loaves. And it's the 23rd Psalm. Now, all of this must have registered with Herod, too, because he, didn't he interview Christ at the end? Yeah, he's going to get his chance to talk to him briefly. Um, and he was listening to John, so he might be, and he's going to have wise men that are going to be talking to him, probably Sadducees. Yeah. So, but, the, he, but Mark is saying the disciples were being a little thick headed about this as well. Okay. All right. Um, ooh, that's probably plenty, I think. Well, let's decide to stop, probably. They were still thinking he's going to somehow become the king. 
blow out the Romans and all this stuff. Probably still hoping that maybe this, and because he, he's still trying to say to them, I'm not coming, and he's saying to Herod, I'm not coming as Judas the hammer. I am coming as the shepherd that will bring my folk. And so that's why, uh, as we then flow into the, fi- the kind of the final chapter of this will be uh, John 10 uh, next week when we start talking about, he's going to declare really loudly, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, and, and uh, the, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Because that, that'll be the final step of that. It's not in the 23rd Psalm that the shepherd gives up his life, but it is in John 10, and he will take it full circle. Okay. Any last comments on that? That's a lot. We're swimming, right? But it's, but it's deep, and it's full, and it's rich. This is kind of the same message that the church is taking to countries around the world today. You know that Christ isn't coming to be a hammer, to disrupt their societies or anything, but instead to bring peace and equanimity, uh, unity, uh, people working together. You know, all of the things that Christ is his message. Yeah, it is. And that was the message then and now. Great, great point. So, uh, bear you my testimony. This is, this is really great. It's, it's rich stuff, and it is, it's a blessing. Um, I know we're somewhat running a little parallel, I think, with the... With the uh, and, and that I'm not that smart. <laughs> this, this wasn't by design that I would be running parallel, I think, with where we are lesson-wise as we're walking through Come Follow Me. But it's amazing how close it's been just as we've been tracking this uh, to some of these stories. So I'm, kinda, I'm glad that it's happening, but it certainly wasn't by design. So anyway, I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I will. Uh, before we have closing prayer, that, that great point. Um, those of that, there's a, a wonderful lecture coming up in two weeks on the 12th, I think, uh, by uh, the, the Miller Eccles Foundation uh, has invited Stephen Harper uh, to come and speak at the. Uh, that's Friday night in McKinney on the 12th. And Saturday in Arlington, right. Uh, Stephen Harper, if you don't know, was, first of all, he was involved heavily in the Joseph Smith Paper Project, and he is one of the foremost experts on the first visions, uh, versions, and also the Searstone stuff. He worked with uh, McKay, I'm blocking his name. Anyway, Stephen Harper, and, and now he's been heavily involved in Saints and, and helping head up uh, Saints Project. So having him here is going to be a very cool fireside on a Friday night. Uh, in, in McKinney. Uh, at 7 o'clock, um, I'm trying to remember the address there at the. Do you know what? I'll, when, I, when I send out the, the audio for this class, I'll go ahead and give the, um, I'll give the address of that, of that uh, meeting. No, it's next Friday, it's the 12th. And then he's doing a fireside. And then, yeah, and then he's doing a fireside. I think on the sun on Sunday night in Arlington. Yeah, and if uh, I've listened to him in a number of settings, podcasts as well as videos and stuff like that, and he's really, really knowledgeable. Stephen Harper's be a great speaker, and we're kind of going to be blessed to have him here. So. He's from BYU. She said not no, it's not in El Dorado. It's, it's right where the old uh, courthouse used to be. 
in McKinney. The, there's a, the old courthouse is immediate, and then there's an office building just to the right, and it's in that, it's in that building. It's not in a church. It's not in a church. It's what? Play core. Play core? Yeah. But if you ever went to the old McKinney courthouse, the big one, and then they moved it out onto 75, it, it's in that, you park in that area, and the fireside will be right. In fact, you'll be able to look into the windows and see everybody gathering through the windows when you park in the parking lot. So, anyway, okay. Okay. Very grateful for this morning.